Hello, welcome to another episode of Sweet Valley Online, where evil triplets come together to snark Sweet Valley twins and explore the darkness that lurks just beneath the surface of Sweet Valley. We recap three Sweet Valley Twins books each month. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes at sweetvalley.online. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Our music is provided by Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast. You can contact him at taylorstuart602 at gmail.com if you want to commission your own music. All of this information will be in the show notes. I'm Wing. I'm Team Lila Forever. But we got some hashtag best Jess this month, and that pleases me. I'm here with my not-so-evil triplet. I'm Dove, and I have not been visited by three ghosts this Christmas. I'm Raven. I've never had a pen pal. And, to be honest, they sound like bastards. This month, we read number 34, Jessica the Rockstar, which really needed to swap places with Elizabeth's new hero, so last month could have been all Jess all the time. Number 35, Amy's Pin Pal, and our first super chiller, The Christmas Ghost. In Jessica the Rockstar, Jessica once again has a true passion of the week. This time, her true passion is, I'm sure you're shocked to hear, being a rock star. Specifically, being a singer in a rock band. All of this is not inspired by Johnny Buck, as you might expect, but by Melody Power after Jess won her and Elizabeth tickets to a late-night concert that they attended without Alice and Ned, despite it A, not starting in the early afternoon like Johnny Buck, and B, them not being allowed to do a bunch of other stuff at night on their own. Team parenting. Anyway... Jess is set on being a famous rock singer, and conveniently, there's a new band at the middle school. N-R-G. You know, energy. Get it? Get it? The book doesn't think you get it, and will explain it to you a hundred times. Energy is made up of Bruce Patman on bass, which he doesn't deserve, Aaron Dallas on keyboard, Peter Jeffries on guitar, and Scott Joslin on drum set, and, for some reason the provider of a great set of amplifiers. Now, Jessica can sing in this book, but she also can't, because she won't stop trying to sing like Melody Power instead of herself. There's a competition for the spot in the band. Jessica gets it certainly not because she's the only person who can offer a rehearsal space in her basement, and she keeps singing badly every time she rehearses. Except the band doesn't really let her rehearse with them because they certainly aren't using her for her basement. When Bruce won't let her practice, he sends her to run their errands, to get him new strings, to get his pick from his mother's house, which, who uses a pick with a bass guitar? Anyway, Bruce, you do not deserve that guitar. To get them cookies and drinks, it's all very terrible. Throughout this, Elizabeth tries to convince Jess to sing like herself, but Jessica really wants to be this rock star. She also, amazingly, works her ass off doing the marketing for the band and gets them their first gig at a birthday party. The band is so grateful. Oh, wait, no. No, no. Instead, they come up with a plan to tell her the wrong time so she misses the party completely and they don't have to be embarrassed by her. Elizabeth conveniently overhears the boys talking about this and then waffles over whether to tell Jessica or not. 
At the same time, Jess has finally figured out that she sounds terrible singing like Melody Powers and starts practicing in secret so she can sing like herself and sing better. When Elizabeth learns this, she gives Jessica the correct time for the gig. Jessica shows up at the party and saves the day and then promptly quits the band because it's too much work and she's missing unicorn meetings. Now, in reality, Jessica would have been kicked the hell out of the unicorn club at this point for missing so many meetings, but whatever. I love that she saves the day, does this wonderful thing, and then completely bounces out of the band and kicks them out of her basement. Go Jess. And finally, I'm sad to admit it, Elizabeth and I agreed on a lot in this book. It was fucking weird. So I take it you enjoyed this book then? <laughs> I did. I didn't think I would, but I probably should have expected to because I really enjoyed the last Passion of the Week that we did, which was uh, Jessica on stage. And I loved her acting mini-career. And I really enjoyed her trying to be a rock star, too. Though, like I said, a little unnerving. Every time I'd say something, and then in the book, Elizabeth would say the same thing. And I started to feel some sort of way over that. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, I really enjoyed this book as well. Uh, there were the parallels that you could draw to Jessica, the, um, Jessica on stage, because it was very... This is the passion of the week. Oh, this isn't. This is what I'm. This is what I'm born to do. And then at the end of it, nah, can't be bothered. As the the Jamie Suzanne click the reset button, so we started fresh for the next book. So apart from that conceit, which you sort of knew was going to happen, I don't think there was anything bad about this book at all. I thought it was really good fun all the way through. It is. I really liked Lila in it too because at first she's just kind of grumpy at Jess because Jess got tickets to the concert and she couldn't. Which aside. Since when can she not get what she wants? But she's very grumpy over it. Uh, she's also grumpy that Jess starts missing practices, or she's also grumpy when Jess starts missing unicorn meetings for band rehearsals, even though she's not doing anything. It was just kind of snarkily in the background the whole time, and I really love that about Lila. Yeah, Lila's awesome. But like, like you said, why couldn't she get tickets? Because she's got an uncle who works for Johnny Buck's record company, and I'm assuming it's probably called Sweet Valley Music Recording Company. You know, it's it's probably not got a great name, and literally everyone is signed there. And, I mean, because this is the Lila who got um, advanced copies of Johnny Buck's new single and was able to give them out free of charge, in the parking lot to divert from Elizabeth's rally when she wanted to be something in student council. So the idea that Lila couldn't get it was a bit hard to believe, but you could definitely understand her grumpiness if that was actually the case. Definitely. If you take that account as being what happened, uh, if you go back and look at that, you know, oh, you, we can get these promo promo copies of Johnny Book's new song and hand them out to a crowd of people at a bloody, basically a pep rally for the school council elections in the sixth grade, then yes, Lila should definitely have got that. But let's let's just think about that for a second. That's ridiculous. Why? How the hell did Lila get them? I don't care how rich she is. Surely Johnny Buck himself would have been like, no. No, that's not happening. You're not going to water down my spectacular release of the new single, which radio stations across the country are clamouring to get hold of. Oh, no, no, no. We'll just give them to this random sixth, uh, sixth grader who, who, want, who has a machination, machinations of, of stopping somebody getting elected in a meaningless council election. That's actually a really good point. And I think uh, at the time, I never, it never even pinged in me that that was weird. In part because 
despite having lived through that kind of thing, I've completely forgotten about the time where singles were a hot commodity and not widely available online literally the second they're available anywhere. So yeah, that's a really good point. Why would he water down that sales potential and the way that it's driving up interest if only the radio station has it? Yeah, well, I went to a turning on of the Christmas lights about 10 years ago with my friends and a pop star, one probably an X Factor winner, um, was there turning on the lights. And um, I don't think she really understood that she was just there to turn on the lights because she was a celebrity. So all we really needed was, isn't it wonderful that it's nearly Christmas? Yay, on with the lights. Because she sort of blathered on for about three or four minutes going, now, if you want to, and you can do this online, you can do it on your smartphones right now. You can go and download my single and if you could that would really boost my midweek figures and I was like just sitting there with my friends 10 years older than my friends going I don't give a shit about your bit boardroom meeting you twat just fucking turn the lights on yeah that is a bit I mean I can understand she probably agreed to do this as a marketing tool for her career but how cold is that? It's like, yes, if you could please download this single, it'd really do well for my midweek figures. Not like, this is a marvellous song about love and loss and redemption, and oh, I love this thing, and Christmas, yay. It's like, actually, it'll it'll have a, a 3.4 upswing in my in my um, demographics, and, and I will get a, a slightly bigger Christmas bonus, so yes. Well, I said it to all my friends, and they were like, oh, we hadn't even noticed. I'm like, seriously, she's been blathering on for about three minutes. Any minute now will come out the PowerPoint. The fact that your friends didn't even notice she was doing it makes me think that that's just how bombarded we are with marketing now. It's so ubiquitous that we don't even notice anymore, so they have to keep trying bigger and better and louder and shinier things to get our attention. And on that note, I'd like to draw your attention to Nostalgic Bookshelf, which is starting in the new year. (laughs) (laughs) So, heading back to the book, um, we've tackled the fact that Lila was strange in this one good because she's always good but strange that she couldn't get the tickets what about the band what did you think of the band nrg did you get it nrg sounds like energy did you get it oh is that did is that what it? it is wow you say that but um there was a band called mn8 in england and um i seem to remember one of their uh singles came out and it had mn8 brackets emanate and then the dictionary definition and i was just like yeah dude we got it so actually i think that jamie suzanne probably nailed it so the band itself was kind of ridiculous well a just ridiculous that this sixth grade band is includes bruce patman like i just it doesn't seem like a thing that he would do i don't know he's just terrible his parents are really sort of old-fashioned and old money so like I can imagine him in front of a grand piano, a bit Edward Cullen or Christian Grey or... I don't know, though. I mean, what, he's a 12-year-old boy because he's a seventh grader, isn't he? So maybe it was sort of that time that I was getting into being in the drums and being in a band, and I can sort of see that. I mean, I know I'm not from old money. Yes, I don't think your mother would have ever forced you to hop in front of a grand piano because otherwise, what would the neighbours think? I will say that I don't think that Bruce Patman's parents have had much of an impact on Bruce Patman, if you go by what we've read so far in the series. He just wanders in, he's a bit of a dick, and he's never saying, oh, mummy told me this, or... So that part of him is not really very explored. I just see him as a normal 12-year-old who happens to have loads of money. If anyone wouldn't be like, would be like that, it would be Lila, because she has very clearly set out her stall about riches, if you like. 
whereas Bruce just seems to be, I'm Rachel, I'm a dick. Right. And I, I don't know. I think that's because that's all we've got of him. I just can't believe that he has interests in anything that is actually kind of cool, like a band. But that's clearly my bias uh, against him and people who shouldn't, shouldn't be in bands, I guess. I think he is interested in the celebrity of band because there's a later book, um, which I believe is assigned to me, where he's telling Jessica that he's parted his hair on the left um, so he'll look just like Johnny Buck. Really? Wow. I admittedly stole that line for Jessica versus Elizabeth, but um yeah, so I think even if he's not interested in the music, I think he's interested in the celebrity that being in a band would would draw, although he's kind of a jackass, so I'm I'm amazed that he's not like lead guitar. Mm, yeah, to be fair, lead guitar sounds more him. Right. Yeah, maybe that's what threw me off. So if if we take that as true that he's interested in the celebrity, that's a fun juxtaposition against Jess, who's also interested in the celebrity of it, but at the same time willing to do the work it takes to get good. He really isn't. Like he does have these rehearsals with the band, but they're never doing work in a way that makes them better. It's mostly fighting over who's making decisions or who gets to do this or who gets to do that. Whereas Jess, when she finally figures out that she sounds like shit, goes and does a ton of work to make her voice louder and to sound better and to learn to harmonize with the music that she has recorded and is practicing along because she doesn't get a chance to rehearse with the band. So even though she wants it for that sort of celebrity aspect, she's also willing to, at least within the book itself, do the work. Though she then quits because it's too much work. But, you know, at the time for their gig... She put the effort in, despite only wanting to do it for celebrity. Bruce, meanwhile, does not. And I think that that's a fun look at, even if they're both kind of shallow in that way, Jessica still comes out on top for sure. I'm thinking back to what happened with the band. They gave her a tape, didn't they, to, to listen to, to practice to. And Am I right in remembering when they did that, they were listening to the tape and they were all like, hang on, this is a bit shit. And they they all were very very oh my god what what's going to happen ah uh, this is you know we're awful and that awfulness did go through to the party before Jess turned up I believe because they were just just na- nasty nasty awful awful players when Jess arrived it surprises me that her voice could save that situation because if the band shit the band shit yeah you know I'm I'm sorry but. Yeah, well, I suppose you can't polish a turd, but you can dip it in glitter. So maybe Jess was the glitter standing up. And And there is nothing more glittery than a Wakefield, is there? And also, you're forgetting the power of a Wakefield. I mean, you're you're approaching this at a human level, but you're forgetting that there's a Wakefield at the helm. The point that I was going to make was, I think, having the band sort of just arguing about who makes these decisions and who's going to write this part of the song and blah 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 who's going to do these things, rather than concentrating on, right, let's go away and learn how to play our bloody instruments. That is a nice parallel to the book with Mr. Davis in, and when all the, the boys had to write that play about the apes running around, and they were just awful, and they were just, you know, messing about and making bad decisions and discussing all the wrong things, things that weren't going to make the play better. Just So I think having that as a parallel, you can sort of see that, yeah, the boys have learned nothing from that because they're still concerned about the periphery of the thing rather than the actual task itself. 
long story short, girls are better than boys. If you like. <laughs> that was a very political answer there. <laughs> very nicely done. <laughs> very politic answer, maybe. I really like that point you made, Raven, about that the boys are still kind of pathing about focusing on the unimportant parts, the surface level parts. And then uh, Jess in this book really dives down into it. And one of the things that I'm really liking as we go through the series is that for all that Jess is supposedly very shallow and, and flighty and only interested in boys and clothes and she hates hard work, she is really good when push comes to shove at getting shit done. Like with that school fundraiser where the unicorns were supposedly selling clothes and everybody became a vice president as a part of the business. In the end, she really kicked everyone's ass in the gear and got them through it. With the band, she kicks everyone's ass in the gear and gets them through it. And after their gig, they really want her to make these decisions and be in charge. And at that point, she's like, nope, too much work, I'm out. But at the time, she can fix things. And I like that even though we're told over and over again that Elizabeth goes in and sees a problem and fixes it, really she's usually just being nosy and they luck into a solution. Jessica actually goes in and fixes what's going on and moves on. And I like that. I have a theory. Is this why people like Jessica more than Elizabeth? Because Jessica is presented as someone who has got wrong ideas, bad morals, but always fixes herself by the end of it to correct things. And then switches back to the Jessica we, we love. Whereas Elizabeth is always right when she, when she has these decisions. She makes the right decisions and there's no growth or no scope for change because basically all of Elizabeth's book end with basically Elizabeth saying, yeah, I told you so. Yeah, and even when she goes wrong, it's because somebody else has, has screwed it up. Like, you know, all that stress over the missing class trip money. And that was because the teacher put it on a shelf in the cupboard instead of her usual place or whatever. Yeah, so it wasn't Elizabeth and she was just wrongfully framed. And But even, yeah, agreed. But even when she goes wrong, it's always Elizabeth goes along with that. But deep down, she thinks that this could be terrible. And it's like, yeah, okay, Elizabeth, just stop being so morally correct. Whereas Jess is always like, hmm, I need to ditch this dog. I'll tie it to a tree. That'll be fine. And then later on bursts out crying because she realises she's done something wrong. Um, and then later on goes, well, it wasn't that wrong and carries on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, that's fine too. So. Well, I mean, Jessica convincing herself that her worldview is right is one of the more entertaining parts, as we've discussed. I think that hits on a really good point. Not only does Jessica have room for growth, but she's very proactive in a lot of ways, despite the fact that Elizabeth sticks her nose in other people's business all the time. She's very passive about it. Things happen around her, and she happens to be there to be the moral compass or whatever. Jessica goes out and makes things happen, and a lot of times those are terrible things. She tries to date an older boy. She goes off on big plans that she can't actually follow through. She ties dogs to trees. You know, whatever. But she's acting, and I think people really enjoy reading about that versus a character who is supposed to be always right and very smart and never does anything. Things just happen around her. Yeah. I guess that if um, if Elizabeth is the moral compass, then it's nice to have Jessica as the magnet next to her, just staring her away and, and making that thing go haywire, because... I think that's when Elizabeth's passiveness does work in her favour because it is good to have her convinced by her sister that things should be a different way. And then it's good to see the, the detritus and the, the horrible aftermath of what's gone on. 
As for Jessica actually working at something, like having a bad idea and then following it through, I think that's going to hit more and more as we go on because I know I kept saying to you guys it gets better and I think we're really reaching the point where it does because I've read ahead the next four or five books and it's again Jessica has a wacky idea and then has to get herself out of the trouble that is caused by that wacky idea but it's the same things that you've been mentioning like she has a, a great idea she thinks it's going to be dead easy suddenly it's not and she's running around like a headless chicken trying to make fetch happen you know and good for her sometimes you do actually think well that was shit you're a terrible human being but you pulled it off so two thumbs up so let's go back to the band let's not disappear down the existential mire that we're talking about at the moment if we go back to the band i thought that the that the band itself was a quite believable representation of a student band i thought the fact that they said well let's get jessica in she can't sing though. Yeah, but she's got a basement. I think that's fine because the old adage is, I think I mentioned this in the recap, the old adage is, you know, why did you hire your drummer? Oh, because he's got a van. You know, it's not because he's any good at drumming. It's so he can transport everyone to the gigs. So I think that sort of, that realism of, of what's needed is is uh, w- was well handled. I, I enjoyed that part. Nice. That's very different than my experience with school bands. Uh, but I could definitely see how that's a thing. Like you invite the person in who can give you what you need and maybe they'll improve or maybe they don't but at this point all we need is the van or the basement or whatever so that's interesting maybe this outlook is is the english versus american way like the american way is choose the best make make it to the top it's the american dream everyone can do it and the english are far more pragmatic and like he's better but that dude's got a van so uh I'm sure that there are many bands here that are like, no, no, he's a band, let's do this. Especially uh, especially in the 80s, I would say, the 70s and 80s, when there, it's maybe not he has a band, but he's got the best drugs. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other thing about that is saying that the band were like, oh, yeah, she's not good, maybe they'll get better with time. The fact is, they're all that sort of age, that they're all shit. I mean, not one of them is going to be really Chopin at this stage, are they? They're not going to be, oh, yeah, I'm Jimi Hendrix, I'm a prodigy. Because that would be a great book if it was, I don't know, Winston the Prodigy, and it turns out he's absolutely amazing at the xylophone or something like that. I'd, I'd read the hell out of that book. I need that to exist. He does pick up the accordion later in... Does he? <laughs> is he Weird Al? Oh, my God, I love that head cannon. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Nice. Crossover. Cheese sandwich meets Winston Egbert. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's an egg and cheese sandwich. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Oh, my God. I'm so writing this for for the next Nano. Yeah, I mean, I I did enjoy. I enjoyed the band. I I, I thought the fact that Jessica got them a gig at some, what was it, like an eight-year-old's party. How the hell does that happen? A band that's never had... I mean, that must have been Bruce Patman's dad saying, yes, you will have these people at this at this band. You will have my son's band at your party. Because if you don't, I'm going to have your son arrested for drugs. <laughs> or whatever. And he's going to be thrown in prison. Because there's no way that that band could be good. So again, like with the babysitting or with the dog walking, I definitely don't see parents just choosing a band without ever having heard them. I mean, I guess I could see parents of an eight-year-old hiring a live band, maybe. So that still seems the kids aren't going to be super interested in that. But 
okay, whatever. But yeah, with doing it without hearing anything, without even meeting the whole band, that seems ridiculous, but par for the course in Sweet Valley. And also, they could be like Ramstein for all the all the parents. No, I mean... <laughs> That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, look at that. <laughs> really, really dirty voice. I need it. I need it to happen. Could you imagine? <laughs> okay, so aside from the band, what else should we talk about about this book? What was the B plot? It's a good question. I don't know, and I'm the one that recounts it. Yeah, I mean that's that's sort of like my point when I asked that. It was like actually the lead story was so good I can't remember the B plot, whereas a lot of the time I complained that the B plot was more interesting than the A plot. So Was there even a B plot? Was it just Elizabeth in the back like Elizabeth's point of view was the B plot? I think so, but it, it focused around the band. Yeah. Or at least around Jess, so yeah, so this was quite a strong entry in, in terms of sort of, like, structure, I guess. I like that there's usually an A-plot and a B-plot, because sometimes one of them is stronger than the other, but this was kind of great just having one plot. Everything is focused on Jess and this band, even Elizabeth trying to figure out what to do or not to do and waffling annoyingly in the background. It's still all focused on Jessica, and that made for an excellent book. I really enjoyed this one. Yes, me too. Agreed on all counts. So are we done with this book then? Should we move on to the next I one? I think so. Yeah. Marvellous. Yeah, this was a good book. We liked it. Yeah. Uh, okay, then let's see if we can bring the uh, the average down a little with the next one. Amy's pen pal. The subject of this week's book is the forgettable Amy Porter. Sorry, Amy Sutton. As Elizabeth's right-hand woman, she's done little but nod and smile and follow the light side of our heroine twins like a lovesick puppy thus far. In Amy's pen pal, she reveals that she actually has a life outside of the Wakefields. She has a pen pal. As luck would have it, while we're learning about Samantha Williams, the pen pal in question, she turns up at Amy's door with an overnight bag and a story about her parents going on holiday. Naturally, initial suspicions are cast aside because Sweet Valley has so much going on this weekend. Lila's having a party, there's a barbecue at the Wakefield compound, and there's a dreamy-voiced high school DJ who's hosting his own radio show from the Sweet Valley Mall. Despite the obvious sketchiness of her arrival, Samantha Williams is allowed to stay. At first, Amy and Sam bond like Roger Moore. Then things go pear-shaped when they attend Lila's party. Sam is the toast of the unicorns, after ingratiating herself by spouting a torrent of ludicrous bullshit. Sam is dating the son of a famous actress. Sam is a DJ in San Francisco. Sam is a champion body popper. Sam wants her to hold giraffe. Sam invented the cream egg, and so on and so forth. Jessica thinks she's full of it, but the others lap it up. Amy and Sam's friendship becomes strained as she aligns herself with the Unigibbons. Of course, Sam's lies eventually come back to haunt her, as the Purple Bitch Squad put two and two together and catch her in a tight lie trap. Their retribution? Make Sam look stupid at the high school DJ's radio show recording at the mall. Amy's fine with the plan, but Elizabeth thinks it's cruel, because Elizabeth's nice. Next, we learn that Sam was not merely visiting. In fact, she'd run away from home because her sister was seriously ill and her parents had bigger things to worry about than cutting the crust off Sam's pity sandwiches. Amy and Liz managed to derail the unicorn plan and spare Sam's blushes, which is incomprehensible to me because Sam's an obvious bellend who thinks her ego is more important than her sister's health. Seriously, I hope she dies in a fat fire. The whole escapade is tied up with a neat bow as Sam's worried and apologetic parents come to collect her. 
I, for one, hope they are whisking her off to a local reservoir, where they will shoot her in the face and slide her lifeless corpse down deep beneath the murky water. But perhaps that's just me. Amy's pen pal. Approved. So, you didn't like Sam, then? I did not like Sam. At first, I did like Sam, because I thought her bonding with Amy was really nice and well handled. But the whole reason she ran away was such a a kick in the sack that it just made me go, no, you can fuck off. Sorry, Sam. That's a ridiculous reason to run away. Have some empathy for your sister. She's in a bad way. She's seriously ill. She's even in hospital, I think they mentioned there. And she's like, oh, no, they haven't cut, they haven't stroked my hair and took me in tonight because they're at the hospital crying over their other daughter. Right, I'm going to show them and I'm going to run away. Get fucked. Agreed. Agreed wholeheartedly. She's just a twat. Don't like her. It was a shame because I, I was really enjoying the book up until that point. And to be honest, I, I really enjoyed the book overall and I enjoyed it after that 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 reveal. But that reveal did a lot to undermine the the, the niceness that was going on in the book at the, at the time. So Agreed. And I kind of wish that the humiliation had actually happened because I'm mean and bitter. And people were mean to me and never got their comeuppance. So I have to live vicariously through Sweet Valley. Revenge is a dish best served cold. As I say, up until that point, it was nice. So maybe we should dwell on those nice bits first. True. Before we completely dis- disappear down the Sandra Ferris hell hole. Well, I need us to recap the beginning of this recap, which is when... It opens with, wow, what a great-looking sweater. Jessica Wakefield pointed to a purple <laughs> sweater, prominently displayed in the store window. And then all three of us went off on inserting great-looking sweater into various uh, classical pieces of writing. So I would like you guys to read yours, because they were delightful. Ah, okay, I'll have to go and get mine up, because I've forgotten what I've written. Also, Wing won this one, hands down. I mean, I... Th- By a country mile, Yeah, yes. I thought I was doing quite well, and then Wing just ran in and flattened us to oh i honestly thought they were terrible minds so i was shocked to hear that (laughs) okay so my three were it was the best of times it was the worst of times it was a great looking sweater a tale of two cities by charles dickens my second was when shall we three meet again in thunder lightning or in a great looking sweater from macbeth by william shakespeare and finally It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a great-looking sweater from Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. I knew having him read those would be worth everything. That was brilliant. Is there any chance Raven can read mine because my browser's just crashed under the weight of expectations? I think he should read all of them, so go for it. (laughs) Yeah, mine won't even load. Doves all had a theme. Um, Dove likes a certain thing, and when she likes a certain thing, she likes it full. So I like both kinds of music, guns and roses. <laughs> <laughs> the world had a great-looking sweater, and it could bite you with it any time it wanted. The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon by Stephen King. The terror, which would not end for another 28 years, if it did ever end, began, as far as I know or can tell, with a great-looking sweater. It by Stephen King. And finally, you've been here before. Sure you have. Sure. I never forget a great-looking sweater. Needful Things by Stephen King. Those are my three top Stephen Kings. And finally, Wings um, 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and a great-looking sweater. (laughs) 
from Genesis 1.1. A great looking sweater. I'm proud to say it was totally my idea, even though the four of us worked it out together. From Christie's Great Idea by Anne M. Martin. And finally, January. Somewhere high above the moon shines down, fat and full. But here, in Tarkas Mills, a January blizzard has choked the sky with a great looking sweater. Cycle of the Werewolf by Stephen King. All right, so worth it. So worth it. That was great. Thank you, Raven. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the, bi- the Bible fun. quote one. Just, just. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> the heavens and a great looking sweater. Good priorities. <laughs> yeah, I think we all had fun there. All right, moving on beyond the great looking sweater. I, for one, whenever I read a new Sweet Valley Twins book now, will be on the lookout for a more apt and ridiculous and Sweet Valley Twins opening line to the books. I don't think we'll find one. Probably not. Yeah, that was prime Sweet Valley. Everything will be downhill from there, unfortunately. Or at least every first line will be downhill from there. Although we are coming up to hashtag best Jamie Suzanne. Maybe they'll have a great looking sweater style line. If not, we can just tweet Michael Grant and ask why not. Okay, so recap, because I suspect that's why some people are listening. I doubt it, but yes, <laughs> we can keep that pretense up. <laughs> okay, so so we had the, the pen pal. Uh, what did everyone think about her lies and the ludicrousness of them? I thought they were perfectly in keeping with someone of her age, because um, as I mentioned in the recap, I had someone say that their mum had got an advanced copy of Chinese Democracy back in 2001, when Chinese Democracy was still a distant memory from a friend who knew Axel Rose. I mean, aside from anything, Axel Rose probably wouldn't give out advanced copies because he kind of has control issues. Second of all, how did a stay-at-home friend make friends with someone who knows Axel Rose? You know, it just... But she just kept holding on to this lie, and if I poked her, she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, they know Steve Tyler as well. He's in the band. No, no, that's Aerosmith. No, no, there was that one time when Axel and Steve worked together. No, there wasn't. Well, you probably never heard of it. It was a very exclusive thing. You know, it just kept getting more and more ludicrous. And I was just sort of sitting there with uh, with the popcorn, metaphorical, of course, because I'm allergic, just going, oh, what else can I say to provoke this ludicrousness? So I thought for a 12-year-old, I mean, this... This person who was lying to me was the same age as me, so 21 in 2001. So for a 12-year-old, even more, she should have invented the giraffe. (laughs) Can I just ask, are you saying that basically you had a friend who claimed they managed to get advanced copies of Johnny Buck's latest single and hand them out to all her friends? Are you Jessica Wakefield? Well, Wings Elizabeth, so that makes you Todd Wilkins. <laughs> I'm Stephen. Oh, God, I'm Stephen. <laughs> My God, what am I going to do? Stephen with a V. I need a sandwich. I'm having very confusing thoughts. If you leave me for Sandra Ferris, I'll kill you. I'll actually go there. But the Johnny Buttig is exactly where I went when you started telling this story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, obviously I read that in the comments you made on the recap and it didn't even connect that. Just because we've just been talking about it, I was like, wow, 
ding ding that's a connection see in real life they don't hand out early copies just willy dilly so well obviously my first question was oh can i make a copy of it like i promise i won't put it on the internet and she's like uh because she said she had it on a cassette of all things in 2001 i was like well i don't know how to get a cassette onto the internet i still don't Uh, and she was like no i've been told that i'm only allowed to listen to it myself i'm like Right, so Axel Rose trusted his friend who trusted your mum who has trusted you. Walk me through this logic again? Yeah, that's weak. Oh, that was amazing. I agree with the actual point that we were trying to get to, which is that the lies were very believable for a 12-year-old, especially one dealing with the unicorn. Unicorns that include Lila, who obviously has done all sorts of ridiculous things. But I thought it was very true that every time a situation came up, she had a story that matched it. It's very realistic for people who are trying to build themselves up by lying about what they've done. It's almost that situation where something A happened to this person. Oh, well, B, which is a much bigger thing, happened to this person. C happened to this person. Something much bigger, D, happened to this person. That sort of escalation of attention and story and action is very realistic for 12-year-olds doing this and for adults doing it. Can I go back to my liar? Because I've just, as you were saying that, I've just remembered another piece of the puzzle that uh, I completely forgot. We also went to school together. That's how we knew each other. I wrote a short story for one of my classes based on her lies. I only slightly tweaked her name. Like, let's say she was called Maria and I called her character Mary. She plagiarised my story and handed it in. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> did you get a good mark obviously i'm awesome <laughs> that's amazing i'm so glad you told me this that. is why i have a history of plagiarism at school because i've been plagiarized like three times at school and so i got the reputation as a copycat when three different people copied me but yeah i mean how's that for inception with the lies that is some inception level shit amazing so if we go back to the actual lies i agree that the lies were they were well structured and they did build as you were saying um wing about them they built upon each other and it was the one-upmanship that is quite rife in that thing amongst a certain subset of people especially amongst a certain subset of my friends that's nothing have you heard this well what about this and so on and so forth um i also think that when she came up with the explanation as to why she lied that was nice i thought that was you know it was very believable because she basically admitted to what you just said that she did get caught up with it it was they were liking her and for the story she could tell and hanging on her every word and she was attention starved it still doesn't detract from the fact that the fact that she thought she was attention starved was ridiculous absolutely i think that ruins all of this like this could have been such a fun story about A girl who comes to visit gets caught up in the popularity game in Sweet Valley, which, as we know, Sweet Valley is built around, and then then has to learn a lesson and apologize to her pen pal and make everything right. But anything good that happens is overshadowed by the fact that she's doing all this because she's not getting up attention when her sister's sick and hospitalized. And I'm slightly more sympathetic to her than Dove and Raven are, because I could definitely see how she would feel strongly about all the attention going elsewhere. And even if her worry kind of transmutes itself to her feeling neglected and alone and scared, 
But at the same time, her reaction to that and the selfishness of the way she presents those feelings is just complete crap. I will say one of her lies was interestingly pulled back. The one where Glinda Paris was in a hospital, I think. And Sam said, like, you know, she dropped by the hospital, but she only got to sort of, like, glimpse her. She didn't get to speak because she was in and out with, like, pain medication. I was like, surely that would have been a great time for you to go, oh, yeah, I spoke to her and I'm going to have a guest part on on whichever TV show Glinda Paris is on or whatever. I think it was Melody Power. Oh, was it? And Oh, you're right. And it's Glinda Paris's son that she's dating, except that son, he's yeah, nine, correct. which is creepy. Very creepy. But... Name or not, I think that's a really good point. She could have really spun that out into, oh yeah, we're best friends now, I've got a spot on her show, she's going to film at my house, whatever. But it's almost like the idea of this hospitalization has affected her in a way that she can't even lie the way she was normally lying. Like, there's too much truth to it for her to successfully lie about it. Yeah. Even though it is a very successful trap for the unicorn, who set it up by basically, if you haven't read the recap or the book, they set it up by telling her, oh, hey, we heard this Melody Power was in San Francisco and she had an accident, she was hospitalized, and that part's not true at all. And she just runs, Sam just runs with this lie. The B-plot of this one was about... Dave Carlquist. Dave Carlquist, thank you. Dave Carlquist, a high school student who's decided, who has been given, for some bizarre and unfathomable reason, a slot of high school radio performing from the Sweet Valley Mall. The whole connection with the Wakefields is Stephen has decided to be into radio production for this book, and this book alone, I'm presuming, in order to help Dave get his show up and running. And Dave Carlquist has a mellifluous and sultry, sexy voice, which has driven Jessica and the rest of the unicorns wild with desire. We meet one of Stephen's friends called Buddy, who Jessica gives the cold shoulder to every time she sees him. And it turns out at the end that Buddy was indeed Dave Carlquist. And also, Buddy is literally described looking like Buddy Holly. You know, he's just this tall, gangly, skinny kid with horn-rimmed glasses. It's like, you could just say Buddy Holly. Believe me, people would know. Everyone knows. Look, you you pull inspiration where you could get it. Come on. So what do people think of the uh, the, the B-plop? Good? Bad? Indifferent? Utterly obvious. It was very Jessica as well, because, like, yeah, skinny dude in glasses, not talking to that loser. Oh, he's hot. Oh, fuck. That's sort of like Jessica's life, really. I think the first time she met him, she didn't say a word to him. He was going to say hello, but she was like, nah, you are basically a non-entity and walked off. So I thought they were going to do the, he's not going to speak to her. Every single time he tries to speak to her, she's going to interrupt him and walk away. But they did actually have a talk uh, while Stephen, while while he was waiting for Stephen or something, in, in in the Wakefield compound, while he was doing that, obviously a pre-recorded part of Buddy's an advert for Buddy's show. Uh, sorry, Dave Cock, the Dave Caldwell show came on, and it it struck me as weird that if she's talked to him and heard his voice, and then she hears his voice in the radio and she knows what his voice is like, and they make a big thing of his voice being so mellifluous and beautiful and sexy, that she'd put at least uh, it'd be at least something strange. Even if she didn't go, you're Dave Carlquist, she might have went, oh, um, and then, then brushed her aside. But they didn't even touch on that at all, which I found was a bit weird. I mean, you could say that he was doing the whole Casey Kasem, this is my radio voice and I'm now on the radio. But I still think the similarities will be there. 
actually, you haven't done that just now. I could see there being similarities, too. Because while that was a very radio voice, I could still tell it was you. And I'm crap at recognizing voices, so... You can still tell, you know, Casey Kasem, the classic example, you, you can still tell he does the voice for Shaggy Doo in, in, in Shaggy Scooby-Doo, Doo? you know, when you hear it, so... Shaggy Doo, yeah, that's his surname. Mr. Doo. Mr. Doo and his dog. And his dog's cousin as well. Oh, fuck the cousin. <laughs> Is that a Sweet Valley book? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the one where it's all from Stephen's point of view. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fuck your sister? Uh, so I thought that this would have worked much better as a college-level story, like the actual radio show and moving on to the radio. The college radio aspect moving to uh, professional radio just sounds much more realistic in college than it would for a high school sophomore, junior, whatever he is. The high school has a sorority but the university doesn't. Now, I'm, uh, I've, I've never had any education in the United States, but by gosh, have I watched some movies. And yeah, I've never seen a sorority in, in high school. I've seen sort of like secret clubs, but it's not really the same, like with pledges and meetings and, and you know, a code of conduct and all that shit. So, yeah, I think Sweet Valley's just sort of like, basically, it took all of the things necessary in education and then shook it like an extra sketch and just randomly assigned it. So that's why everything's back to front. And because I agree with Wing that college radio is something I have seen in movies. High school radio, I have only seen in Pump Up the Volume and that ended in an arrest. Well, I could definitely see there being high school radio enthusiasts, but them being so good at their job that they are being offered a real job with a real radio station that's the part that i just could not suspend my disbelief whereas college radio stations moving into kind of mainstream prime time radio that sometimes happened not as much and especially not as much anymore that was a thing that could have happened at the time a high schooler doing it just doesn't make any sense i think that your statement about how you can't really apply real school logic to sweet valley is a good point and also that they really are reaching out for whatever they need for that particular book is going to be there whether it's logical or not and also something to bear in mind is uh that buddy slash dave is the same age as steven so he's 14 he's a freshman he's not even a senior we we don't know how long the twins have been and uh, everyone have been going through this year of school but um if the next one is chris Christmas, then they've only been at it three months so where's he put the work into uh so since you can't see me i'm frantically raising my hand like a student in class because i thought that was funny if he's 14 has he even gone through puberty enough to have that sort of voice i thought you were hopping up and down to say hashtag sweet valley time oh yeah also hashtag sweet valley time but no i was raising my hand like a nerd because i enjoy being that I was gonna, I was gonna raise the same um, point. I didn't put my hand up for it, but I was gonna raise the same point. I think it would have been really good to new onto the story is if his voice actually broken while he was <laughs> going through his very first show on from the mall. He's like, "And welcome to the world. Hello, everyone. It's the new song by Johnny Book." <laughs> really cool. I definitely thought he was older, junior or senior level. So yeah, I must have just flat out missed the fact that he's. Stephen's age so yeah that makes even less sense unless I've just assumed that possibly he was older but I assumed that yeah well either way I don't think he's much older so yeah I mean the high school part in general is unbelievable if he is 14 if Dove has read it correctly then he should be going through or in the middle about to hit her in the middle of puberty and that is just ripe for terrible terrible adventures on the radio 
Okay, so are we done with this book? Oh, no, I will have to say, I thought Lila was spectacular in this book. She was every bit the Lila that we love. There was a few times, uh, for example, when everyone in the Unicorns were going, hang on, this Samantha Williams is telling lies. She's, she's done this, she's done that, she's done everything, she's done so many things and they're all cool. And Lila's like, what's wrong with that? I've done all these things, I've been to Paris. <laughs> and I thought that was so well done. That is pure Lila and definitely still team Lila over here because it was perfect. Yeah. One of my favorite parts was a little bit of an aside about how great San Francisco was and the reference to the beautiful fog globe you guys bought. That thing is amazing. Everyone should go look at the recap and look at the video of one. They're beautiful. Yeah. Okay, I found the, the two Lila quotes that made me laugh the most. The first one is when Sam complimented Lila's fabulous home when they all attended Lila's party. And Lila responded with, or well, Lila's stern expression softened. Thanks, I made sure the gardeners worked extra hard to make the patio look nice, which was just amazing. And then the second one was when she approached Amy at the party to say, I'm really surprised that you and Sam are such good friends. Amy tried to keep her tone even. Why is that? Lila shrugged. She's wonderful. It doesn't seem like you two would have so much in common. <laughs> which is just so cold. Lila's marvellous. No wonder everyone loves her best. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to Lila-centric books in future. Yeah. She is truly delightful. Yes. And on that note, shall we move on to the third book? I think so. This month, I recapped our first super chiller, The Christmas Ghost. Strange as it might seem, Jessica is not actually visited every night by three ghosts who want her to change her toxic ways. This is the first and only time. The story starts a week before Christmas, where Elizabeth is trying to arrange a fundraiser for the children's hospital, and Jessica is trying to maximise the amount of presents she gets. Elizabeth has the brilliant idea to write to Bo Dylan, a hot new teenage actor who is starring in the musty Christmas movie of the year, which is inexplicably about cancer. Because nothing says festive joy like chemotherapy. Because she's Elizabeth fucking Wakefield, Bo not only gets her letter, but calls her to say he'll drop by the house on Christmas Eve to discuss fundraising ideas. Naturally, when Christmas Eve rolls around, Bo is delayed and Elizabeth has to go out and give gifts to orphans or die for humanity's sins or something. So Bo actually meets Jessica. Bo assumes he's meeting Elizabeth, not knowing she has a twin, and Jessica doesn't correct him. Bo is out of time because of the delay, so offers to take her to lunch the day after Christmas instead. Jessica decides she doesn't need to tell Elizabeth that Bo actually did show up. She can keep her date with a movie star, and then Elizabeth can take over afterwards. After all, as long as the fundraising happens, why sweat the small stuff? However, in a very unjust-like turn of events, she feels actual guilt. But she does her best to shake it off, shoring up her resolve by telling herself that Bo Dylan is so cute and no normal person could turn down a date with him, even if it is date by fraud. That night, Jessica is visited by three ghosts. The ghost of Christmas past, a young version of Jessica, who shows her scenes from the first book and some from much younger, which are probably original to the series, where the twins were happy and Jessica did not abuse her sister quite the way she does now. 
the ghost of Christmas present is a big purple unicorn who shows her scenes from now and also the past for some reason, which shows how much Jessica has hurt her twin. And the ghost of Christmas future is a mysteriously shrouded figure who references things that might happen in Sweet Valley High, including one of the many times that Jessica tried to steal Todd Wilkins from her sister. Ultimately, future Jess ends up friendless and alone with only Lois Waller, not even her own twin, making friendly overtures towards her and getting slapped down in the process. Jessica resolves to change, so when she gets home, she tells Elizabeth that she loves her and comes clean about the bow situation. Elizabeth, still showing an amazing lack of spine, immediately forgives her, and they have the best Christmas ever. Well, you know, until the magic Christmas, a Christmas without Elizabeth, big for Christmas, or the year without Christmas. Nice. So, I take it as a massive fan of the Christmas Carol trope, that you have some strong feelings about this book. I love this book. Not even sorry. I do. I love this book. I don't think it's the best super chiller, and I don't think it's the best Christmas book, but I adore it nonetheless. Uh, there are better ghost stories, and there are better Christmas stories um, in the Sweet Valley Twins universe, but because I love A Christmas Carol so much, I adore this book, and... I used to love reading it when I was when I was younger. Although even as a kid, I did notice that the shit that Jessica pulls is the same shit that Jessica has pulled for the past thirty odd books. And um, no ghost showed up then, so what's the big deal about Bo Dylan? Uh, I don't like Christmas Carol as much as Dove does. I'm not sure anyone likes it as much as Dove does. Yeah, not even Charles Dickens. <laughs> it is, of course, the season for retellings. We did a couple over at Devil's Elbow, Fright Christmas and The Fright Before Christmas. And despite those being books in a supernatural setting, supernatural series on a horror-based website, the ghosts were so much better in this version of it that I have just overwhelmed by it one of the ghosts is an angry flying unicorn you cannot beat that for a moment you kind of hope it's twilight sparkle and then you realize that it's really fucking angry it's not twilight sparkle also the first ghost is the younger version of jessica and i swear it takes her a page and a half to notice that it's her i'm like dude you're the twin who spends all the time in front of the mirror also you're constantly looking at your twin how do you not know i know don't call elizabeth wakefield the mirror that's not nice (laughs) oh we should i really enjoyed this book as well i thought it was great the issue i've got with the use of this trope the christmas carol thing is that nobody wants to see a christmas carol 2 after scrooge has mended his ways and and is all good and sweetness and light and uh, i don't know buying tiny tim new legs or whatever goes on in that so i find it hard to reconcile the fact that this christmas carol story appears in a timeline after which there are countless examples of jessica still being an absolute fucking asshat does that mean if we take this as canon, that Jessica is going to grow up to be this hideous, shunned person that nobody likes, just wandering around the forest with twigs in her hair. (laughs) As I said in the recap, I think this was some sort of, like, clerical error for the gods of Sweet Valley. I feel that someone messed with their config file, and all of a sudden, Jessica was being judged, not by how pretty she was, but by what she did, and it threw the world into confusion. Like, luckily, after this book, someone resets the config file, and Jessica gets you know ten out of ten because she's pretty. I mean, it would have been uh, another twist on it. It would have been if um, Elizabeth was visited by three ghosts 
who was sitting there going, if you don't mend your ways. She's like, what are you talking about? It's like, you once chained a dog to a tree, and then you're being very terrible to your sister. And she's like, no, no, that's my twin. That's not me. And they're like, um, we'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> or, like Blackadder, they appear to they appear to Elizabeth and show her, like, in an attempt to get her to save Jessica. And she realises that Jessica is going to be the scariest thing on the planet. So Elizabeth turns evil. <laughs> yeah, Amazing. yeah. It completely goes the, the other way. Yeah. But it does, as you guys have said, although you haven't read ahead, it does put us in this awkward position where Jessica in canon knows that she's going to steal Todd Wilkins from her sister and still does at least twice. I'm just mentioning the books where it's the, the, the A plot. She's done it so many more times than that. And she's just like, yeah, fuck it. I want my sister's boyfriend. Screw it. That's amazing to me. And I actually am quite impressed that these were real foreshadowy things, at least some of them, to the books that I haven't read. So I think Sweet Valley High was published first, correct? It was, yeah. So I do like that they tied this into... The later books because if you start sweet valley twins you're probably younger and growing up with them or growing up as they stay the same into the sweet valley high and then you get there it's like oh i remember reading about this and this and this and it keeps that feeling of nostalgia going even when you're reading technically older books that was actually surprisingly clever yeah i, I did like that I'm, I'm looking forward to because obviously i've heard i've had some spoilers from from dove just telling me lot you know what little things that could happen uh, or, or do happen in future books, but there's so many. You sort of, you know, I don't pay too much attention to that. But reading stuff that I'm like, oh, is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? Oh, that's cool. So that was a big plus point for me too. Yeah, because they do mention the sorority by name later in the actual book, Pi Beta Alpha, which is the sorority that the twins are rushing on the opening page of the first book. So I feel confident that that's not too big of a spoiler. Amazing. Well, yeah. yeah. So clearly in this timeline where Jessica is completely unliked and unwanted, Elizabeth rushed and I, I don't really get why they didn't rush at the same time. Yeah, okay, true. That's weird. Yeah, I don't get how Elizabeth is in it and president of it. But then again... Yeah, surely at some point Elizabeth would have had to not approve her sister for membership if she right? was president. Yeah, that's weird. Whatever happened to her, just, uh, Elizabeth could never say no to her sister. To be fair, there is a book later on I won't give names, and I think you can infer from what I'm about to say, it's not really a spoiler, where someone tries to join that some of the snobbier aspects don't want to join. And what they do is they put marbles into a box, and a white ball means yes and a black ball means no, and this person gets blackballed. So, and just one black ball means no. So I suppose, in theory, Liz could have been saying yes the whole time but one black ball means no and from the state of the universe um i should imagine all she got was that one white ball from her twin so i don't really know how she thinks jessica's going to get in in this future because they're at a cookout on the edge of seca lake and jessica's trying to follow markers through the trees i don't really get it but you know whatever and they put the markers out of sight so she can't even do that so Maybe they're just trying to say, well, she failed the pledge task, so we don't even have to vote. Maybe to make it less awkward. Or like Elizabeth will stop bringing this up if her sister fails at the pledge tax versus us just voting her out. Yeah. Also, they do say that they went ahead and put the markers up just too high for her to actually see. Why did they put the markers up in the first place then? 
why not just have no workers and just let her be wandering? Yeah. <laughs> why that extra effort? Or why not send them in the completely different direction? Perfectly visible. That's a good one too. Yeah. I guess Sweet Valley aren't aren't very bright. So that's um the markers on in the sorority pledges sorted. What about the rest of the book? <laughs> we had lots of thoughts on this apparently. Yeah. Well, should we go chronologically, like the past, yeah. the present, and then we'll come back to the future if we've got anything else to say? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So the past is younger Jessica showing current Jessica the past. And the first thing she shows her is the twins only being a few years old on a carousel. And as Wing rightly pointed out, why is Alice just sitting on a bench looking at her toddlers rather than supporting them on the ride? I really, I definitely did not read it as just a few years old. I missed that quote, so I was reading your recap. And I just thought, I, I just went boom. And I don't even like kids, and yet I went boom. Like, the fuck? They're gonna fall off! Yeah, like, the minute you said that, I suddenly remembered us all riding the carousel in Santa Cruz. And... There were mums, like, propping up eight-year-olds, so definitely, if it's a toddler, I don't know, maybe she duct-taped them there, and just, like, sitting there sipping her gin. Yeah, that's the gin. <laughs> Mother's ruin. That's what's brought her so low. Nice. She's great. like, ah, oh, if they die, I can make new ones. Or if one dies, at least I've got one, you know. And they've always been <laughs> the good backup. at that twin switch thing. I can just, like, always keep them running around the house, like, oh, that one's Jessica, and whoosh. Yeah, that one's Elizabeth. Despair. We get to the bottom of the whole thing when we have a, a book where it's just Alice, it's just called Alice is Pissed. And <laughs> she's, she's just there saying about, you know, talking about her daughters. It's like, yeah, I realise why Jess is such a terror. Back in the day, we used to call Elizabeth and Jessica original and backup. <laughs> she's got a really bad inferiority complex because of it. That's why she's so mean. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> New headcanon. So besides the ridiculousness of them being on the carousel by themselves, this whole point of this is to show Jessica the way she used to be really nice to Elizabeth, or maybe I mean, quote, really nice to Elizabeth. She's nicer, but she's not like acting like Elizabeth to Elizabeth. Although there is a flashback where she says, I, I think you read the story really nicely. I think you, you were the best reader in class. Jessica does say shit like that now, but it's usually why she's trying to steal Elizabeth's favourite outfit, the shoes off her feet, her pocket money, that gift they bought for Alice, or not trying to take care of a dog. You know, there's usually something malicious behind it. Although, possibly this scene gives us the origin of their relationship, because unprovoked jessica gives her that compliment and then elizabeth immediately rewards her by giving her a cookie wow yeah positive reinforcement works yeah don't do it <laughs> uh we're pretty sure that uh the grant applegate team wrote this and uh yeah so possibly they're making a slide dig who knows well also like there's a scene where they're together and bruce patman comes up and is addicted to them because even at like seven or whatever he's an asshole and jessica just shoots him down puts him in his place and sends him on his way just humiliates him i'm like oh back when jess hated him the way she should didn't she call him Patman the fat man she did which is actually a pretty decent ride for a young jessica it's pretty good but isn't it just the, the genesis of all the lois waller fat shaming oh, it it's is, like yeah, it's the first the, the, the first of many times that she calls somebody fat yeah she also told lila to sod off not rudely or anything but lila said hey jess do you want to sit with me and jess was like no i've got a twin and poor lila 
because obviously I also see the softer side of Lila, as mentioned in my recap. Like, she's all alone. Her dad's constantly away. She's never met her mother. So she reached out for friendship and got twatted down. So poor Lila. It does make a lot of sense if that's what she was like younger, that this is what she's like as a preteen in the most of the twin timeline. So she really is good at getting attention for herself and kind of obsessed with it. And it makes a lot of sense if like, well, clearly her dad's always traveling. But if she's that lonely and has been shot down in the past when she was being nice to people, of course it's going to work better for her to be mean. People pay attention to her then. The other day, Raven said, are we ever going to recap Sweet Valley Kids? I was like, I'm not sure we're going to live that long. But we could be contradicted should we ever go there. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Yeah, always just keep in mind that we started with twins instead of going all the way back because we wanted to get to uh, Sweet Valley Confidential before we were 100. <laughs> it's going to be funny when we get there and just like with this whole wealth of knowledge of literally every book since they were 12. It's probably going to break our brains. I wonder what important stuff will get pushed out of my brain to make way for all this. I think we're all going to be very much... Well, I think you'll find that in this book, when Jessica says this, it directly contradicts the time that she was pretending to be a rock star. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. So what you're saying is that basically we are going to be a better Sweet Valley Bible than the actual Sweet Valley Bible that the ghostwriters were given, which you can read more about in Dove's interview with Michael Grimm. Yeah, let's have a quick, a, a slight, slight intermission to talk about that because that was very, very cool. Yes. Basically, after much faffing around... I drafted up some questions for Michael Grant, and then I agonised for about, I don't know, a month and a half over the wording of the request, and eventually shot him a direct message and asked him would he be willing to answer these questions, and if not, no hard feelings. And I think he came back to me within a day, and so I have just put it up on our site, and it is a joy to read, and I, I think you can read the subtext of possibly the editors at Sweet Valley, not the greatest in the world, but um, it is an interesting read. It really is. Yeah, and thank you very much to Michael Grant for, for, for taking the time out of his busy schedule to answer those questions. It was it definitely made our day. Yeah, because I was surprised at the quick turnaround because I sort of just shot it off and sort of said, look, we'll be starting your, your books in the new year. It'd be great to have this as a lead in and sort of assuming that he'd take Christmas and maybe get back to me. And then he just came back with answers in about 24 or 48 hours. I was just mind blown. And thank you for uh, doing this, Dub. I know it was kind of a stressful situation for you since he and Catherine Applegate are heroes to you and me quite a bit. So that was really fantastic that you did that. Yeah, interesting stuff. Like now I'm sort of like, now I've got to do this again when we get, when we start recapping Making Out because there was references to Making Out in there. So yes that's awesome okay so um bypassing the grapple gate love let's go back to the book christmas present christmas present which was a fabulous purple unicorn that was as pissed off with jessica as the reader which was just a wonderful thing to behold also it's purple with like midnight blue mane and tail with stars in it and it, it just sounds awesome yeah this is the best ghost of christmas present ever and it's pissed off with her which is even better it sort of takes her to Bo's house where he's going on about how wonderful Elizabeth is. She's a fucking saint. And as I've said in my recap, he should have met her when she wasn't allowed a horse. Just saying. 
I thought this was a really nice touch. Jess is sort of like, oh my God, thank you for showing me Bo's house. I've seen pictures of it in magazines. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you, spirit. And then the spirit's like, fuck you, bitch. And then he just starts bad mouthing like fame whores. And Jessica realizes that, oh, it's a lesson, not not a present. <laughs> that was really a best Jess moment. She's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Despite the fact that she has literally just been hanging out with her past self, learning lessons about how she used to be nicer to her sister. We get to present uh, Christmas present, which until I said it out loud a minute ago, I did not realize what was happening there. I feel like an idiot. Anyway, we get to Christmas present. <laughs> and she's like, oh, this is a great gift. The unicorn loves me. The unicorn does not love you. <laughs> yeah, it was just awesome. What else happens in present? My brain's gone blank. I, I just remember that moment and just sort of like chuckling at her. Well, Christmas present takes her into the past. Yes. Because that's logical. Yes. And don't we get to see the the scene from Best Friends where Elizabeth is crying over the fact that Jessica wants to be a unicorn and Elizabeth can't function without someone to tell her what to do? No, I think that's Christmas future. That's past. Oh, is it past? I was thinking, like, the unicorn takes her, it's just briefly past, but takes her back to when they were opening presents so she could see from so she could see what was happening from Elizabeth's point of view. So she hears Elizabeth's thoughts and all the ways that Elizabeth is really upset about... About Bo letting her down. Yeah, and, about the Bo thing. And Jessica did not realize... Yeah, and also that she thinks that Jessica's done something shady because she looks guilty. I'm like, Surely Jessica looks like that, like, all the time. Actually, you're right. Uh, it does take us even farther into the past. So basically, Christmas present takes us a little bit into the future. Or, I'm sorry, a little bit into the past and then much farther into the past. So Christmas present kind of a jackass. No, actually, it is the future because this is like 2 a.m. on Christmas day i was thinking that it couldn't be because they opened the present they opened one present each on christmas eve so right christmas present takes you a little bit into the future then a whole lot into the past because christmas present sucks to be fair hashtag sweet valley time <laughs> <laughs> all right to be fair you're right it's sweet valley time it's it, a sweet valley time period and then b technically this is only a couple months back even though it feels like several years the stuff at Best Friends only happened in maybe September. So, yeah, fair enough. Exactly. Yeah, and we just get that scene again where Elizabeth's all upset and Jessica's like, oh, I never knew. It's like, but didn't you have to get her into the unicorns to appease Je uh, Elizabeth's codependency? But still, it was nice continuity. No, it was. And it was good to see that Jessica really does walk around in this world where she has no ability to see anything from anyone else's perspective like she legitimately doesn't understand what elizabeth is upset at her about various things unless elizabeth flat out tells her she's upset if it's some sort of subtle nuance say jessica just doesn't see it or get it and i think that rings really true for her character and then she falls off the horse yes <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, the unicorn is, like, tired of your shit and just bucks her off, and she just, like, falls through the clouds. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm surprised she wasn't rescued by Johnny Buck in a flying fucking limousine at some point. <laughs> yeah. 
So that takes us to Christmas Future. Indeed, where she is just completely unliked. Um, We've already covered sort of like the cookout scene where she's failing to pledge. Then there's another scene in the dairy burger isn't there where um she's sitting all by herself and elizabeth is there surrounded by the high school version of team boring which is olivia davidson possibly julie porter and todd wilkins and believe me they really are team boring and then when they leave lila says to bruce do it now insert your own porn joke um (laughs) and then bruce swaggers over and flatters jessica a bit and then asks her out and she's like oh yeah of of because i'm hot and then he says yeah i'm gonna take you to a dog show i'll let you know your booth number you know because she's a dog and she could enter and and then he explains it twice much like nrg we wouldn't get it and apparently the entire dairy burger falls about laughing which i think is a bit i mean if you've ever walked into mcdonald's it's not all high school students like there's a sizable portion of them but there's you know some families and stuff and apparently they all fall about laughing including the three-year-olds who don't get why it's funny they don't have to get why it's funny he'll explain it to them many many times that's why he was just glaring them down going this is you know because she's a dog my dad's rich laugh and also i like uh well liked is too strong a word but i thought it was interesting and weird that all of this that's going on circles back around to elizabeth writing in her journal about that one moment when everything went so wrong for jessica which was that christmas where she lied about bo dylan because, yes, clearly you could always pinpoint the one exact moment when your whole life would have been different if you'd only been a better person. Especially when it's Jessica! <laughs> I'll give that a pass, I think, because that's the only way I can reconcile Jess being a complete dickhead after this book. Because if we have the 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 ghosts of Christmas past, present and future pointing to it's like, well, it all goes wrong when you do this, and only when you do this, then... Jessica can explain it all away by like, well, okay, I didn't do that, so therefore everything else is fair game. So she can continue being bad, knowing that her future has changed because she didn't do the Bo Dylan thing. You know what? Fair enough. Yeah. She really would be the kind who'd be like, no, that one thing is the only thing I've ever done wrong. It's awesome. But yeah, fair enough then, actually. Oh, and also, she like future Jess is mean to Lois. Like, before Bruce gets there in the Dairy Burger, um, Lois sees that Jessica's sitting alone and says, you can sit with me if you like. And Jessica's like, fuck off and die, loser. I'm too good for you. And Lois just looks hurt. Even current Jessica, who's watching this unfold, is angry and shouts at herself not to be mean to Lois. And yet she spent all the books this vlogs being mean to Lois. Exactly. Except she's slightly less mean as when she thinks, oh, Elizabeth said I shouldn't do that. And I'm sure she'll be mean to her in the future, including the book that we get to that's about Lois. So yeah, fuck off, Jessica. <laughs> Much as I love you, just fuck off. Yeah, mostly I just wanted to use that to highlight how nice Lois is. That's true. She's great, you deserve better. And also, can I just point out what a, what a bitch Elizabeth is? Because why is Lois sitting alone when St. Elizabeth, kind to all, is there? Why doesn't Elizabeth say, hey, Lois, despite the fact that you're fat and clearly inferior to me and my size six glory, would you like to sit with me because I am feeling charitable and I can put up with fatties? 
Is Lois sitting alone? Yes, she I is. Thought Lois she w- is. I thought Lois would just like, like for example, had just bought her food and had her tray, and was walking back to the the table. The text specifically says that only two people were sitting alone. One of them is Jessica. One of them is Lois. It's like booths that are near each other, but they're still alone. Okay, fair, fair. Which makes me sad because Lois is great. Surely she has some friends in the future. Come on. I'm pretty sure she has some friends now, so why wouldn't she have friends in the future? She has a boyfriend named Jean. It's as if they've s- deliberately sought out an unattractive name to go out with the fat girl. But, um. Todd Wilkins doesn't exactly set the world alight, does it? But it does sound <laughs> incredibly American. Like Todd Wilkins. Chip Niedermeyer. I don't know that I would have liked either of those names as deeply American. But Todd, no. definitely. Like, I don't know a single English person called Todd. I really know one American person named Todd. But it is a much more American name, that's true. So, that's the ghosts. Yes. Anyway. And after the ghost, we have the redemption. We do. I thought that was handled well, to be fair. I quite enjoyed Jessica's impassioned speech at the end saying, I know that I can be be quite hard to deal with and quite hard to live with, but I don't mean to be. I thought that was well handled. I agree. Uh, It was really good. The whole book was pretty great. I loved the book. It was just, yeah. And it was quite sweet when they reconciled. I mean, if I was Elizabeth, I'd have at least kicked her in the shins and said, you deserve that before forgiving her. But I have a spine and Elizabeth doesn't. So that would explain a lot. But yeah, and then it ended with like some saccharine lines about how it's the best Christmas ever and the best present of all is having a family that loves you or whatever. And, you know. Well, obviously not got a PS4. (laughs) (laughs) I got a PS4. Yes. I bought myself. Who needs familial love? Clearly. Oh, I've just noticed that at the end of the recap, you laid out where all the other Christmas books take place if you were trying to line them up continuity-wise with this one. That's ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> the Carnival Ghost takes place on December 26th. So, conceivably, the twins have the best Christmas ever, and then they go to bed, and then horror unleashes the next day. In the best super chiller ever. It really is. Well, at least there's precedent for ghosts in this book that that leads to the next day of lots of ghosts. (laughs) Yeah. I am quite surprised that this was branded a super chiller rather than a special edition. I agree. Because, because, yes, it has ghosts in, but it's not a horror story, is it? It's It's culture. Everyone everyone knows the Christmas Carol. And while the visits of the ghost can be horrifying it's still a tale of redemption it's not like a scooby-doo episode you know so that that did surprise me these weren't particularly horrifying like one of the ghosts again is a unicorn yeah but it was a it was an angry unicorn to be fair this is true i I mean i loved it but it's not a scary ghost yeah well i promise real ghosts and pray not much culture in the next ghost stories. Well, to be fair, you promised me real ghosts at some point, and we got to them, so... Yeah. It only took a year, but we're here. I've got to say, that's probably a better turnaround than we did on pointhorror.com. I don't know how many years it took us to get to actual supernatural in Point Horror, but only a year. Much less to actual werewolves, so... (laughs) Only a year is pretty good timing. Yeah, and you do have the carnival ghost assigned to you and i think it it's in the end of march good times uh i am excited about that one though i find it sad that we're hitting that in march and not around christmas but you know there's plenty of christmases to come this is true yes okay so we're done with the christmas ghost uh christmas carol 
Christmas Ghost was right. Am I right in saying that's three for three good books this month? I think yeah. so. Yeah, has that happened before? No. I don't think so. I mean, I think there's been a month or two where we didn't hate one of the books, but I don't think there's ever been a month where I really liked all of the books. Yeah. It's a Christmas present for everyone, that. And now let's move on to Bleak Valley. Jessica Wakefield doesn't exist. She's merely a construct in the mind of Elizabeth Wakefield, an abused only child trapped in the basement by unloving parents. Elizabeth Wakefield, whose imagination spawned the whole of Sweet Valley in an attempt to escape her lonely, imprisoned, apocalyptic clusterfuck life. The name for Elizabeth's altered reality? This desolate nightmare, the purple underbelly of a cracked psyche, the dark world of her mind and soul? Bleak Valley. Right, so the first one is Jessica the Rockstar. Yes. Do we have any Bleak Valley theories on this? Is it a metaphor for Jessica's terrible singing is brought about by her wanting to be Melody Powers and actually she's much better singing as Jessica? Is this bleak Elizabeth telling herself that much as she loves her imaginary twin, Jessica, she's not and it it won't get her anywhere to pretend to be Jessica. Maybe she's, she was a bit sassy or something, thinking what would Jessica do at, at home? And her parents have kind of slapped her down and she's sort of like, right, okay, I can't act like Jessica. I can only have imaginary Jessica. That's a really good theory, especially if she got punished for letting too much of this Jessica aspect slip out. Of course she would then be like, no, no, I, I have to keep it squashed. I have to survive this only way to survive is to just stay the way i know i need to be my normal self that's interesting and also maybe she wants to punish the jessica character for Mm. getting her into trouble and that's why jessica is a gopher and everyone's bad mouthing her and um she she even says that her her throat hurts after trying to imitate her sort of like gravelly Bonnie Tyler style croonings. So maybe she wants to sort of like punish the Jessica character in a Sweet Valley way right. for getting her into trouble. That sounds incredibly meta for for Bleak Valley Elizabeth or Bleak Valley twin woman. <laughs> That's very sort of, you know, very self-aware of her own Bleak Valley nature, if you like. I definitely think that we've had some moments of meta in Bleak Valley where she's things go badly and she could see they went badly because of this thing even what not to be victimly like she did this and this happened she could kind of make that connection whether big picture she understands that she'll never escape or not i could see it happening on a smaller scale like that well for a start there's a parallel we can draw with her being in the basement being underground to do the band practices but how about her trying her hardest and doing the stuff for the band could be her, Bleak Valley Elizabeth, trying her hardest in order to 
in order to ingratiate herself with her family, who hate her, basically, making her do all these tasks. And she realises that the only way that she's going to have any worth is if she speaks up and uses her own voice to try and better her situation. And maybe the party that she gets up and sings at is a time where she actually fights back a little and tries to stand up for herself directly to Bleak Valley Ned and Alice and tries to make her voice heard. And it goes reasonably well because they do respond to it, not in a massive way, but they respond to it in such a way that she realises that maybe if she did have more spine or maybe if she did have more of a forceful approach to their relationship, she could get a little bit more leeway. However, in doing so, that took a lot out of her in actually getting the courage to stand up and say something. So she concludes, no, it's not worth it. It's too much work goes back as being meek and subservient again. I could see that. Hmm. I'm having a hard time believing they would react not terribly to that. Like, I don't even want to say well, but just react in a way that didn't knock her down. But I do see that even if it was just no reaction or even a minor positive reaction, that would have taken a lot for her. And it might not be, I can't keep this up, but the second I slip, they're going to hate me again. So why... Why would I keep fighting? Which is really heartbreaking. Well, maybe it wasn't the parents that she stood up to. Maybe it's that step-sibling. That's a good point. Because if you think about how the boys treated her in the band, it's like, go and get me a soda, run over here, get me this. And, you know, she probably is a gopher for the step-sibling. So maybe she did get a modicum of improvement in her life. Maybe she got a pillow or, or a blanket or something. But she can't face doing it again because she's like just exhausted by the process and she's also now terrified that sooner or later the parents will find out that she said this to the step sibling right yeah and it's too scary to contemplate really and she just can't can't deal with it so you know she'll take that minor win and then crawl back into the cupboard under the stairs that's really great nicely done because In the book, Jessica doesn't get any approval from adults. She gets approval from seventh graders. That's a good point. I like that. Well, maybe in a slightly less bleak way, maybe the step-sibling starts to abandon the basement. (laughs) She's obviously in a cupboard under the stairs. And the band's are shit. <laughs> Her little cot is just bouncing, like, with <laughs> with reverb. Aww. And she's just like, oh, I hate you guys. Stop playing Mustang Sally again. Oh, just play something decent. I like it. Yeah. She's like, I could be the lead singer for this. I could be brilliant. And I would fix everything. I'll become famous and I won't have to live in a, in a bucket under the stairs. <laughs> I do think that that sort of escapism is always there. Like, whatever the... Yeah escape thing or the the obsession with with fame is in the book i feel it can always be tied back to bleak valley elizabeth wants out here's another way she could dream about it which is heartbreaking she'd be awesome as a rock star that suddenly got ridiculously famous because like i've read all of the gnr autobiographies and all of them separately say the first thing they did like when they got a new house was just decorate one room and live in it like it took them years (laughs) or or wives to move into the rest of their house they just didn't know what to do with so much space and i reckon bleak elizabeth would be the same she'd find the smallest coziest nook and just live in that god that's also heartbreaking poor bleak valley elizabeth (laughs) all right well what about amy's pin pal maybe she in this is actually samantha williams and wanting to run away and looking for attention and maybe 
the reason she runs away to Amy, if you like, and not to Elizabeth or to Jessica, is that she doesn't think that she'd be able to run away to the main character of a story. Mm. She runs away to a secondary character. And maybe the lies that she tells as Samantha Williams are her knowing, her, her having a moment of self-awareness that she tells herself lies in order to get through her regular day. I could see that. Or also this idea that if you take it that it's she's Sam and has run away, she has no idea how to interact with people that aren't Bleak Valley, Ned and Alice. So whatever story they're telling, she comes up with a story to, to go with it. Not because she's trying to outdo them, but because she doesn't know any other way to find common ground. So, oh, you did this, I did this too. We're the same. Or, oh, you did this, I did this too. And it just happens to be that she's talking to a bunch of different people, so the lies get bigger and more ridiculous, especially with Lila around, <laughs> who has really done big, ridiculous things. And so it's just her trying to fit in and failing miserably at it. How about she actually did run away? She managed to get out of the house and go to a next-door neighbor's uh, house or something like that. And when her parents found out, because she told the next-door neighbor that she lived in a cupboard under the stairs, the parents found out and they're like, oh, yeah, that's all lies. It all has to be rescinded. You know, so she has to be seen as a liar to a nice person. Yeah, I, I can sort of see that. I like the connection with the lies. I think if she ran away, I, I'm not saying she wouldn't run away. I think if she ran away and went to a neighbour and even was saying, yeah, I live in a cupboard under the stairs, I think the bleak Valley Elizabeth that we've invented, I think if a neighbour was confronted with that, then they would call the police or the social workers or something like that. Because if I'm not mistaken, the bleak Valley Elizabeth that we've created, nobody knows she's there. That's true. Apart from the people in the house or the step-sibling, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I do like the, the I do like the structure of her running away though. Um, maybe she does run away and she doesn't go to the neighbours or she just she just I don't know meets somebody or something and tells them, like some guy in the park or something like that, some homeless guy or something like that. And maybe he's like, "That's nothing. You live under the stairs. Wish I had stairs to live under. I live on a bench." You know, and the dogs piss on me in the middle of the night and blah blah blah. And he comes up with his horror story. So that's the lie connection, and then she goes home. Yeah. Or she's, uh, the parents come and collect her. Right. And, uh, you know, they, they, they find her and take her back and give her a beating. I just have a hard time believing that she would ever be in the spot to escape. Like, I absolutely think yeah, she that's would fair. try. Yeah. I, I, and I realize that they're, like, drunk and distracted, etc. But she's, if they have managed so successfully for so long to hide her from the world, her mere existence... How did she even get out? That's a really good point because in that scenario, I see the step-sibling as being sober and quite clear-minded and only being able to save themselves by throwing all the shit at Elizabeth to take it. So Absolutely. that's, yeah, a really good point. How about maybe she doesn't run away, but she feels like she had an opportunity to run away. Mm. Oh, yeah, I like that. And she didn't take it because she's so sort of downtrodden and, you know, she's so... Um, Munchausen, not Munchausen, what is it, the um, Stockholm Syndrome, Yes. where she, she can't leave. But then she thinks, oh, if I do run away, this is how I would do it. But then the lies, she's like thinking to herself, no, if I did run away and told people about my situation, nobody would believe me. Yeah. And that's why she doesn't run away. And then when the whole thing comes, when, when, when the whole thing comes back and she gets brought back in, in the fantasy, it, it's an escapist thing that her parents actually do love her. It was a misunderstanding, but that's just pure escapism on her part. 
I like that a lot. And on the other side of it, she tries to imagine, what if I ran away but just pretended I was normal? And what if I told all of my Sweet Valley stories to prove that I'm normal? And then she realises that people wouldn't believe that either. It's too fantastical. And even if she's like, well, I can't tell them all of them. I just choose one. How does she choose which one to tell? Like, she's so deeply entwined in all of these various stories. How do you pick one to survive at? You'd always be like, but I should do this one. But I should do this one. I just don't think she knows how to make decisions even. Yeah. And to be fair, the continuity is terrible in Sweet Valley. So um, she would trip herself over and may see someone going oh what about the time that uh, as a life raft and then trip herself over so that's a good point yeah. so she could be running scenarios either way about that time she could have escaped and reassuring herself no i did the right thing by staying here because they'd just think i was a liar if i told them the truth or i told them about sweet valley yeah yeah nice nice and the christmas ghost do you want a bleak valley up your beloved christmas ghost there dove I got nothing. Now this one, I've got... It's, it's going to be tricky to Bleak Valley, this one, because this is such a classic story that the only way that can be an imagination of somebody trapped in a cellar is if that person's got a copy of The Christmas Fucking Carol. We love Bleak Valley Elizabeth, but she's not Charles Dickens. Yeah. That's very true. So I think it might be a case of she's got a copy of that somehow. An old tatty copy of an old book that you can get in plenty of places. Yeah, it's only it was only 99p when I bought my copy. Right. Maybe that was just, you know, yeah, shut up, just read this. Pushed under the door or something like that. Because we, we have established that she does get cast-offs and hand-me-downs. Right. And a copy of The Christmas Carol is a believable thing. Yeah. To just be handed down because, it, because it's been written and released so many times. It is, <clears throat> it's virtually a worthless book. Not uh, as an object, not a worthless text, but a worthless book. Yeah. So her getting a copy of that, I think, is believable. And then if she's read that, I think that could just be pure escapism. Yeah, I agree with that. Or even an actual dream for her versus a piece of Sweet Valley she's built when she sleeps. It's a Sweet Valley in her head exists so strongly that it just ties into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. You're right. It's harder with this one, both because it is it's so good. Like, it's hard to pick it apart. But it also turns on the idea that a Christmas Carol exists and that the reader and the creator is familiar with it. So it is hard to pick that one apart without it just being, she read the book, which she does get hand-me-downs, you're right. And they don't want her to be completely stupid. They require her to have a brain to do stuff that she does. So give her something. I could see them doing that just to keep her quiet. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I have nothing else. Do you guys have anything yeah, else for it? Yeah, okay. no, I don't think so. It's a tough one, that. <laughs> that one was. All right, well, not as depressing as normal. Bleak Valley. Yeah. <laughs> So do we want to do favorite and least favorite, which is yes. going to be awkward this month? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's going to be interesting this month because they were all good. Well, I guess more I mean hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, after you, Wing. Oh, this is hard. If least favorite's easier. Amy's pin pal was fun and entertaining, but it, the whole point behind why Sam was doing what she did just dragged it down. So it is definitely my least favorite. I liked it, but not as much as the others. It's a hard draw on the other two. I'm going to have to say Flying Angry Unicorn wins. So The Christmas Ghost is probably my favorite. As much as I love Jessica the Rockstar. Well, for me, I was going to be controversial and put The Christmas Ghost as my least favorite of the three. Of, of a very good batch because of The Christmas Carol has been told so many times. However, listening to you name your favorite and least favorite, mentioning Samantha Williams being an absolute arse. 
at the end. I think that does mean that Amy's pen pal is probably my least favourite of of the three. But I'd say I really enjoyed it until she was just massively selfish, and uh, you know, it could have been, it could have, that could have been my favourite had that not occurred because the rest of the book was great and Lila was amazing. But I think my favourite will have to be Jessica the Rockstar, nice. um, simply because having been in a band at about that age, it struck me as acceptably ludicrous and silly, the whole thing that they were going through. Unbelievable, if you know what I mean. It was good. It was a good story, well told. Definitely thumbs up for me for that one. If I know that... I knew you'd been in bands before. If I know that it started that young, I might have suggested we swap. I definitely had pin pals growing up, so ah, I would right, love yeah. to have seen your perspective uh, as the recapper on... 12-year-old rock band, yeah. so that's really I started, cool. We started when I, I think we were 13, so it was a year old, yeah, and that's when we enough. started. The band was Scooby-Doo and the Mystery Machine, so yeah, okay, that's we, we were great. And we still have a cassette tape of Scooby-Doo and the Mystery Machine. Oh no, it's Badger, isn't it? That's, we've got a cassette tape of Badger, which is my band in university. Alright, Dove? I'm going to agree with the majority that Samantha Williams' uh, motivation really let down an otherwise strong story, and I will also reiterate the viewpoint of all of us that this was a hell of a batch. This was like three really good stories back to back. In any other batch, any one of these stories would have won hands down. But Samantha Williams' motivation did ruin it. Although I found myself siding with Amy all the time. I I was just as bitter and pissed off about it as she was, which was unnerving because I don't like Amy. And I think it will come as no surprise to anyone at all. In fact, Wing and Raven are both rolling their eyes. A Christmas Ghost wins because I love the story and childhood nostalgia will always win. Fantastic. So that's two votes for A Christmas Ghost and one vote for Jessica the Rockstar. But Amy's pen pal universally uh, loses. Yes. I think that had there been almost any other motivation behind it, I would have loved that book. Completely. Yeah. But yeah, that, it just killed everything I'd loved. It killed it dead at that moment. Like, fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, if her parents had been working long hours or something and she was using this, well, they don't care, I'll I'll go. But the fact that her her kid sister was in hospital, it was like, you selfish wazzock. Any sort of tenuous justification for it. would Even if we'd have read it and went, oh, that's a bit much. Rather than going, what? You're an arse. Even if it had just been, there's a new baby sister, like a new baby that's taking yeah. up the time, and she's jealous. Like, it would have been an over-the-top reaction, but it wouldn't have made me go, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. All right, so this was actually an excellent month to go out on for the end of our first year. Three very wonderful books with that one kind of dip with Amy's pen pal. Yeah, so a great way to end a year that started out with me thinking I was going to burn everything to the ground. <laughs> yeah, this was a really good end of end of year month. It's obviously all going to be downhill in 2018. Yes, I was just thinking that, but you know, hopefully not. My actual favourite book in the series is coming up in March, so... I thought so. Like, this is kind of the stretch where you really like the book. I think it will continue to be good. And we're also about six books away from Best Jamie Suzanne. So that's exciting. Okay, so um, I hope you all want to join us in the new year because in the new year we'll be moving over to Nostalgic Bookshelf, which will be widening the scope of our recap empire. (laughs) And the podcast that you've come to love, 
I hope, uh, will be changing somewhat in format. We're going to a weekly podcast, which I hope is going to be exciting for everyone. They will be shorter, but each podcast will be dealing with a single book, so you can get your homework done and read up on the books before you listen if you wish, or you can just listen along to have the usual nonsense and whimsy that we spout on a regular basis. And to be clear, we will not be leaving SweetValley.online. All the recaps podcasts will still go here. We'll just also be at NostalgicBookshelf.com which is going to branch out into things like Making Out, as Dove referenced earlier, which is by uh, Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant, though he's not credited. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm assuming because it was a teenage YA series aimed at girls. Don't stick a boy's name on it in the 90s. We'll also be doing the Babysitter's Club. Uh, some gaming surprises are coming out, both Choose Your Own Adventure books and various gaming adventure books and, and some console stuff. Enid Blyton. That's exciting for people who know who that is. I have never read anything, so I'm excited to get into that. And for those of you who do know who Enid Blyton is and have listened to Wing for the past year, I bet you're as excited as I am. Well, <laughs> I'm certainly looking forward to 2018 now. <laughs> awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, in a new update, Wing will not be reading <laughs> But, you know, have fun with it. Uh, no, so we're really excited about Nostalgic Bookshelf. Dove has done a lot of great behind-the-scenes work to really make the website Definitely. interactive. We Thank have, you, Dove. We have a bunch of new recappers coming on to join us who are super enthusiastic and smart and funny. I think you're going to love them. Uh, and so, everything will be collected at Nostalgic Bookshelf. Except for Sweet Valley, which will still take place here, and the point horror and horror-based books and movies will still be at pointhorror.com. So all of that will still be the same. We're just expanding out to bring you more exciting things, and we hope you will come along with us. I think it's going to be great. Yep. Me too. Me too. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us this month. Um, we might have, if we uh, if we get our acts together, a small retrospective. Uh, released around about New Year to talk about the year that we've had and uh, the first year of recaps on SweetValley.online. But until then, or until next year at Nostalgic Bookshelf, we'll say goodbye. And goodbye to Rosie as well, because apparently she freaks out when she hears her name on the podcast. Oh, goodbye, Rosie. Thanks for being such a wonderful listener and fan and uh, friend. Goodbye, Rosie. You've got very nice curtains. (laughs) Thanks, Raven. Way to scare the fr- our friend. Now this is a creepy uh, podcast, so... <laughs> and we're out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Sweet Valley Online. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes on our website at sweetvalley.online. Come talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Thanks again to Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast for our music. We'd love it if you subscribe, rate, and review us at your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.